today uh, we're going to be talking about blind spots. Today as we dive into to the book of John, our teaching day, we're going to talk about blind spots. And I didn't have to look very far to find an object lesson today. Uh, we had an object lesson come our way. This was the taillight in our minivan. <laughs> when we started the week, it was all functional and not broken. But uh, here's the story. On Tuesday night, I was putting out the trash. And you may notice we've had a little snow the last couple of months. And so when there's that much snow, I can't put the trash can where I normally put it on the curb. And it was at night, and I didn't want to put it in the street. So I, I did my best to put it off to the side, you know, in our driveway. And so that was Tuesday night. Well, Wednesday morning comes, and Laura wakes up with this just sore neck, and she's sick, and she's bringing one of our girls to school. And so she backs out, and guess where I had put the trash can? Right in her blind spot. And bam, there goes the, there goes the, uh, the taillight. Well, if this were a small group, and we were all sitting around a circle, this would be the part of the small group where we'd say, now you share your blind spot stories. And my guess is that if you've been driving for any length of time, you would have a blind spot story. And then I, I would imagine we wouldn't even get halfway around the circle before someone would say, do we only have to talk about that kind of blind spot? Right? Because there are, blind spots take different forms, don't they? Um, here's a blind spot that I just realized that I had, I just realized this week that I had had. Um, here's a picture that goes back in the day. Uh, this was me as a senior in high school, and we're standing in front of the first new car that our family ever had. Um, up until this point, we had a fleet of vehicles, none of which were new or even close to that. In fact, I think the average age of our cars growing up was about the average age of a Supreme Court justice. So that's <laughs> roughly the kind of cars we had. And my car at the time was a 64 Cheville. And I remember thinking, man, this thing is such an old, old car. And then we got this thing, the Ford Tempo Sport. And I thought, this thing is like a Ferrari. You know, I, I'm just amazed because my Cheville, it had three on the tree. Some of you may know what I'm talking about. When I, yeah, we got, we got one three in the tree in the back there. Two. All right, three on the tree. You'll have to Google it. It was quite, a, quite an experience. Um, well, the Tempo had a five-speed stick, and I'm like, this is just the coolest thing ever. My Cheville had an AM radio. Uh, the Tempo had a tape deck. And it even had this little button on the tape deck that said Dolby. It didn't do anything, but it made you feel good. I got Dolby, you know. My uh, Cheville had windows that you could roll down, which I, everyone had at that point, but the Tempo had air conditioning. Like, this is the coolest. Air conditioning in a car? Are you kidding me? This is the best. And then my Cheville had a gas gauge that didn't work, which has got all kinds of stories associated with that. But, but the Tempo was so cool that you could, even, you could even adjust the level of lighting on the dashboard, which I just sat there for, I would say, hours, but not. It seemed like I was just, this is the coolest. So at the time, as a high schooler who had never had a new car before, I thought, this Tempo Sport is so cool and then this week, I went and Googled, um, did a search to just try to remind myself about my 64 Cheville. What was I thinking? That car was a classic. <laughs> they're selling for like $35,000 now, refurnished. They, it was this two-door. It was, it was amazing. So then I Googled 88 Tempo. <laughs> you can't find any of them. They don't even exist anymore. They all just kind of rusted into the ground, and they go where Pintos went, to the pit, Right? So, so I had a blind spot about cars, right? 
blind spots take so many different forms. And as we dive into our lesson today, I would encourage you to write, take out your notes and write this down. Everyone has blind spots. Can I get an amen? Everyone has blind spots and they take all kinds of different forms. And individuals have blind spots. And how many of you know groups can have blind spots? Entire groups, entire organizations can also have blind spots. And they can be very, very dangerous. If you're not attentive to your blind spots, they can have serious health implications. They can destroy relationships. You can undo your life and your goals and your dreams if you have these blind spots, which we all have. And the same things with organizations. So many organizations get into big trouble because they're not aware of their blind spots and don't take account for them. Well, today we're going to explore an account in John chapter 9. And in this account, Jesus heals a man who had been blind from birth. Now, before we open our Bibles, I want to encourage you to write this down about the passage we're going to look at, John chapter 9. There's more to John 9 than meets the eye. There is more to John chapter 9, the chapter we're going to look at today. There is more to John 9 than meets the eye. And if you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to to take it out now and open up to John chapter 9. And what I want to do is I want to give you some context this. Because if you don't have the context behind this or, or, and just jump right into it, what this appears to be is this appears to be a story that is primarily about a physical healing. And that is one important but small part of this. This is really about spiritual blindness more than anything else. And it's easy to miss that without the context. So before we start reading, I just want to give a little bit of context here, including some of the things that we talked about earlier in this series. Right now, we're in a series called The Reveal, where we're looking at these accounts in the book of John. The Gospel of John opens with echoes from the book of Genesis. As our Creator once brought light into darkness through His Word, the Word itself had now become flesh and was walking among us in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. And in the chapters leading up to this one, John weaves in themes of light and darkness and blindness and sight. And we're invited to come and see what God is revealing through the promised Messiah. And all of this builds. If you start reading at the beginning, it builds. And it builds up towards chapter 7. And it builds up towards chapter 8. And, and in those chapters, Jesus is at a key festival. He's at this key festival in the temple area. And there he stands up and he proclaims, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And he follows that up with saying, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And there's people in the crowd and they hear that Truth will set you free. And they say, we have never been enslaved by anyone. And I'm like, oops, do you even know your history? The history of the people of Israel is one of enslavement and, and freedom that, that, that came as a result of truth. And even as they were saying those words of, we've never been enslaved by anyone who is occupying their land, the Romans. So Jesus pushes back to their, to their bold claims that, that we know the truth and you don't know anything. He pushes back and then they double down and they say, we have one father and our father is God. And Jesus calls them out again. He says, if God were your father, 
you'd recognize that God sent me. And then Jesus reveals the truth. He said, there's another father. And be careful because this father, he's the father of lies. And he was a murderer from the beginning. And they're like, you don't know what you're talking about. And then they say this. They, they respond with another lie. They respond with a lie that Jesus was a demon-possessed Samaritan. And then they pick up stones to murder him. So Jesus is revealing all this truth that they're blind to. That is what comes immediately before the passage we're about to read. That's what comes right before this. They're about to kill Jesus. And it says he hid himself from their sight. And then we pick up here with this account where Jesus' disciples are now leaving the temple area. And they pass by a blind man. And the disciples ask Jesus now a question that revealed one of their own blind spots. The disciples have blind spots too. And this is where we pick up with the account John chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2 says this. As Jesus passed by, he saw a blind, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? And he was born blind. The current or the teaching of the day that the disciples were reflecting in their words was that if something happened that was bad to you, it's because you sinned. And, and a lot of people believe that even to today, that, that, that if something bad happened to us, it's because we sinned. And so if a child was born blind, what people assumed in that time and in that place is that either that child must have done something in the womb, that was their narrative, either that child had done something in the womb to sin or their parents had sinned. Here's a, here's a, a way that used, the rabbis used to present this teaching. They said, there is no death without sin, there is no suffering without iniquity. So then that caused people to come up with all kinds of narratives in their head to explain why something was the way it was. Well, Jesus had a different answer. Jesus' answer was not, yeah, this is a result of this guy's sin. Jesus had a different answer. And here's what it says in verses 3 through 5. Jesus answered, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, I've read this passage before, and I'll just confess, I read this, and it almost looks like this guy was blind so that God could have an object lesson. But it's far more nuanced than that. Far more nuanced than that. God is at work, Jesus reveals. He is at work. He's at work all around us. Part of the work that God was doing was to heal this guy. That was one of the signs of the Messiah, this, this restoring sight to the blind. So one of the ways God is at work, he's restoring and he's healing a broken world. But God's going to reveal more to us than that through Jesus here. Much more. The way that people respond to this healing is going to reveal whether or not they really want to see. And that's one of the things that's going on here. So Jesus does this. If you've ever wondered, if you've read this before, and if you've ever wondered why Jesus heals the way he does, it comes into play later. So look at this, this thing that seems so strange. Begin with verse 6. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go. 
wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back, what? Seeing for the first time in his life, this blind man could see. Now, what just happened here is especially striking when you consider the context. We'll talk about the fact that it happened on the Sabbath in a little bit. But right now, I want us to focus on the fact of when this happened in the context of this festival, the one I referenced earlier, this festival that Jesus was at. In this festival, it was a festival known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And in this festival, for the last seven days, every day, the priests would go down to the same pool that Jesus sent this guy to, the pool of Siloam. And they'd go there with jars. And they'd fill the jars with water. And then they would march as one. They'd have this processional. They'd march to the temple. And they would ceremoniously pour out this water on the ground. And they did this every day for seven days. And people would make religious pilgrimages to come and see the show. And the priests were the stars of the show. And this ritual was so popular that one of my sources said you could actually buy souvenir jars that commemorated this event. There was merch back in the day. So now imagine this. There's this really polished ritual that you would come and watch that supposedly was telling you about God. And what does Jesus do? He sends the blind man the opposite direction that the priests were going. And he sends them to the well. And he goes to that same well. And there he's healed. And while all these people are observing this religious ritual that is doing nothing. Except potentially revealing stuff about God. God is doing the stuff. He's actually doing the stuff. And they miss it. More than 20 times in John's gospel. Jesus is described as the one who has been sent by God. The blind man was sent by the one who was sent by God to wash in the place called sent. And that man was healed. Jesus was doing the good work that the religious ritual pointed to. Let's go back to the story, picking up with verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar, the blind man, were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. And others said, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I'm the man. If you ever want to know where I'm the man came from, (laughs) it wasn't here, but it also (laughs) says it. All right, anyway, I digress. All right, so they said to him, then how were your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. As we continue on with this, this reading, look for that word no, because it shows up a lot. There's a whole lot of people who claim to know. I know, we know, I know, we know. You'll see it a whole bunch. And they don't know. They don't know what they think they know. All right, verse, I think, picking up with just the next verse, verse 13, I think it is. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him, how do you receive your sight? And he said to him, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, ah, ah, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, 
He's a prophet. He's a prophet. All right. Everyone has blind spots. Everyone's got them. Jesus' followers had him. And here we see that the critics have blind spots too. In this case, the Pharisees had 39 classes of work that they believed were forbidden on the Sabbath. And kneading dough fit into one of those 39 forbidden categories. And so what some of the scholars speculate is going on here is when Jesus made the mud, the Pharisees said, that is like kneading dough. You are a sinner. You're breaking the Sabbath rules. So there's no way that you can be of God. You know, I've always wondered about that making mud and I've never seen a real good explanation before. I'm just going to throw a speculation out there. I think Jesus did this on purpose on the Sabbath as part of this revealing is part of the revealing. Because Jesus, if you look at when he heals people, he doesn't always do it the same way. It's as if he's working on different levels. And he knows in this situation, here's what people need to see. All right, picking back up, verse 18, I think it is. The Jews did not believe that the man had been born blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son? who you say was born blind, how then does he now see? And the parents answered, we know this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. And then look at this sad commentary that John includes. Very sad commentary. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. When Jewish boys turned 13, they were expected to take personal responsibility for commandment keeping. But this wasn't two parents teaching their son an important lesson about growing up. If anything, they were doing the opposite. And I want to drill down on this a little bit because I believe there's a very practical application here and that application involves fear. The application involves fear. The blind man's parents were afraid. And they were so afraid that they were prepared to toss their own son under the bus. For fear of the Jews. And not just him, but also the man that had healed their son. Who had been blind all these years. There's a place to write this in your notes. Fear can keep you in the dark. Can I get an amen? Fear can keep you in the dark. We are all going to have fear. You have to choose what you're going to fear most. You're going to have to choose what fear is going to go at the top of your list. John makes it clear there are a number of people who are afraid to talk openly about Jesus. May this never be a church where people are afraid to ask their questions. People were afraid to talk openly about Jesus because of fear. Take a look at some of these examples from the book of John. For fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about Jesus. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. Here's some more. For fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. He was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. The doors being locked for fear of the Jews. The fear that gripped these people was real. We mentioned it earlier in the series. If you found yourself on the receiving end of a Pharisee's pointing finger, you could end up being shunned by your family, by your friends, and the entire community. So this was a real fear. But I have a question for you. Which do you fear more? 
that people who are walking in darkness will misunderstand you? Or do you fear more that you would fail to align yourself with light and truth? Let me ask that again. Here's the way I wrote it in my notes. Which, which do you fear more? Being misunderstood by people who are walking in darkness or failing to align your life with the truth? Here's something I'd encourage you to write in your notes. There is no freedom when you fear the wrong things. And if I, if I nuanced this out properly, I shouldn't have said it exactly this way because it's about, again, fearing the right things the most. You can fear things, and we're going to fear things, but what are you going to fear the most. If William Churchill had feared the wrong things more than the right things, Europe might look very different today. Just as if you or I fear the wrong things more than the right things, we will become enslaved to masters who don't have our best interests in mind. The word of God says this, Proverbs nine ten: the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And if you're not familiar with that phrase, the fear of the Lord, that means to have right reverence for our Creator. To say, you are God and I'm not. And to align our lives as best we can with His truth and His ways. To do otherwise is something the Bible refers to as idolatry. Jesus often, or John, John often framed these concepts using the words love and world. And uniquely so. I typed uh, the words love and world into a search engine. And in the Bible, they appear 17 times in the same verse. 14 of those 17 occur in John, in the book of John. This is a key theme for him. If you love the created things more than the creator, you are walking in darkness. And you're positioning yourself in opposition to what God wants to do. Picking up with verse 23, back to our text. Therefore, his parents said, okay, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, the Pharisees called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. Remember that phrase. They told him, give, they had the audacity to tell him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. The irony here is too thick to cut with a knife. You need a chainsaw. They are so blind that they are telling a man to glorify God by falsely testifying against the Messiah. They are using language that Jesus will later use in reference to the suffering that he is about to go through so that actual sinners like you and me might be saved. Here's a quote that, that will come to later in this, uh, in, in this book. John 17, 1 says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The Pharisees are so all in on the narrative that they've created that they're failing to recognize all of these signs being fulfilled in their midst, including signs that they were acting out in this ritual. They're all in on a narrative they've created. There, if we can go to the next slide, here's, here's something that I think N.T. Wright just nails. He says this, the Pharisees want to drive a solid wedge between Jesus and God. And if we had more time, I'd love to, to go off on this important tangent for a while, but I'll just touch on it. One of the forms that that takes today, I don't see as much people trying to put a wedge between Jesus and God, but I do see people trying to put a wedge between the Old Testament and the New. I see it all the time. I also see people trying to put a wedge 
between Jesus and Paul. I see that all the time. When you pick up on those kind of things, if people try to put a wedge between the whole of Scripture, that's a red flag. That is a red flag. All right, let's go back to the text. The blind man answered, the formerly blind man answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? Oh, that did not go over well, in case you're wondering. That did not go over well. And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Well, they had just said he came from Samaria. So they're not even being consistent. But the thing I'd never noticed before, I'd I'd read this before, I'd never made this connection before. He says, we know God has spoken to Moses. There's this account that's included in the Gospels called, we call it the transfiguration, where Jesus is on a mountain and he's talking to Elijah. And who else is Jesus talking to? He's talking to Moses. These people are so confident of things they know nothing about. We know Moses. Jesus just got done talking to him. Wow. We often mistake blindness for sight. The passage concludes with this. The man answered. Why, this is an amazing thing. You start to see some confidence swelling up here. I got nothing to lose. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, hey, that's really something we should think about. Wow, it didn't even, no, they didn't do that. They said this, they go, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Well, some of the Pharisees near Jesus heard these things and they said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say we see and your guilt remains. And he writes, summarizes a section well as he writes this. He says, suddenly... The picture comes into complete focus for this man that was once blind, and he believes. One of many individuals throughout John's story who make that final step, which John wants every reader of his book to make. So what if they've thrown him out of the synagogue? So what if the authorities, real and self-appointed, have declared him to be born in sin from top to toe? He must follow where the truth leads even if those who are supposed to know the truth are suppressing it. The truth sets us free, doesn't it? In this case, to the point of, what are you going to do to me? You throw me out of your synagogue? I don't want to be a part of living this lie. There was a greater fear that he now had, and that was suppressing the truth. Here is an invitation from Jesus Christ to each one of us. And there's a place to write this in our notes. 
Jesus still invites us to come and see. He still invites us to come and see. Just as any good father would teach his kids about blind spots when they learn to drive, there is a good father who invites us to come and see. And there are so many people who say, you know, if I could just see a miracle, if I could just see a miracle with my own eyes, then I would believe. Isn't this just an example to the contrary? If you don't want to see, no one can make you see. And that isn't just true for spiritual things. We see that all the time, don't we? If a boss doesn't want to see, you can't make him see. If an employee doesn't want to see, you can't make him see. If a coach doesn't want to see, you can't make him see. If someone you're coaching doesn't want to see, they can't see. If you don't want to see, nobody can make you see. In a very real way, this man who was blind from birth had been born again. And his eyes had now been opened to much more than shapes and colors. He could now see things that those with physical eyesight were blind to. And we offer this invitation as we bring today's teaching to a close. Do you want to see? Do you want to be a person who wants to see? Will you have the courage to be a person who wants to see? Everyone has blind spots. And there are people all around us who can help us see what we can't see. So let's start on a real practical level, on a real just elementary level. Will you become a person who welcomes feedback? Because it can set you free to just listen to those around you and receive feedback well from your friends, from your roommates, from your teachers or your students, from your parents or your kids or your spouse, from your coach, from your athletes, from your teammates from those you work with, for those you work for, for those who work for you, those you agree with and those that you disagree with. How many of you know you can learn things from people who disagree with you? Absolutely. So on just a very surface level, I want to encourage all of us to recommit today to say, I want to be a person who will receive feedback well, but even more so on a deeper, more foundational level where our core values and our beliefs and our identities are formed. When it comes to things of faith, I want to encourage all of us to recommit today to being a person who wants to see. One of the things I love about our church is that we have so many people coming from so many different backgrounds. I was thinking about this. I, I was dropping my daughter off from school and I've, I've tried to recently have the, the discipline of not listening to radio or anything like that when I'm alone in the car. And I try to pray and I try to think. And, and um, so as I was praying, the thought popped into my head that I've heard it said that mutts are generally healthier than purebreds. Yeah. <laughs> mutts are generally healthier than purebreds. My personal experience is this is true of churches. Churches that have mutts they come from all kinds of different backgrounds. If they're not a bunch of cynics, that's a whole other story, right? But if you've got a bunch of mutts who are seeking truth, oh, that's a healthy thing. It is such a healthy thing. And as the worship band comes forward, I want to I close with an illustration that I can't take credit for. I was having lunch with Steve. And so Steve, if I mess, he said it much better than me. I'll just say it. I'll just say it right now. But I love this illustration. I love this illustration. If you didn't listen to anything else I say, listen to, to, to Steve's illustration. This is really, really good. All right. So, so we were having lunch and we were talking about how one of the things we love about this covenant denomination we're part of is their approach to talking about God. And, and our approach here in the covenant is 
what, where is it written? What does the Bible say? If you ever want to know what the, what the covenant believes about any issue, that's our answer. What does the Bible say? And we have a unique, a surprisingly unique way of going about that. We try to go to the word together. This is our standard. This is our standard. You can't just believe whatever you want to believe. This is our standard of truth. But the way we come about it is he, he took two cups and he said, often, don't we come at it like this? And he clanged the cups together. You know, isn't that often how we do it, right? We come to the word and I've got my ideas and you got your ideas and I'm trying to win the argument and you're trying to win the argument. Nobody sees, right, Ben? But then then he took the cups and he he put them together like you're kind of in an auditorium facing the truth and and, and said, isn't this the way we want to be, right? We're, We're on the same side. We're looking at the word together and we're seeking truth. And we're trying to understand. And what do, you, what do you see? And what do you see? And, and what am I missing? And what are you missing? Isn't that a, a better way to live? I think it is. So, with a show of hands, can I get a commitment? You're not committing to say, I believe everything that the Bible says yet. Because you may not be there. But can I get a, by a show of hands, can I get a commitment that we're going to be truth seekers and not argument winners? Okay, thanks. Because that's really what this community needs to be about that we want to be a community of truth seekers, where that's what we're looking for, truth. And we're listening to others along the way as we go to the word together. Let me pray, and then we've got an awesome song that just brings all this together. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us enough to speak the truth and speak it in love. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll descend upon us like never before and help us to be a people who hunger for truth, whether it's that that elementary level of just learning to listen to feedback about personality stuff and blind spots or this deeper foundational truth that of which everything else is based on and that is the truth about you help us to be a people who seek that above all else may we fear not aligning our lives with what's right above all other fears help us now open our eyes to to see what you want to say to us and open our hearts and our minds what you want to say to us through this song amen